1: in that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: This is Mary Todd Lincoln. President Lincoln said that you could fool all of the people some of the time. And some of the people all of the time. But he always said that you can never fool Professor Buzz King, So don't even try Let's join the good professor as he talks history, busts myths, and takes names. I'm getting a little hot and bothered just thinking about it.
2: Yes, indeed, it's your favorite professor here. And in a moment, we're going to talk to one of my favorite professors, Marcus Rediker. Professor Rediker's new book, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, The Quaker Dwarf Who Became the First Revolutionary Abolitionist, has become one of the most talked about contributions to the study of slavery, the slave trade, and radical opposition to both those evils in the 18th century. We had a short Man Crush Monday episode about Benjamin Lay a while ago, and many of you wrote in asking for a fuller show on his life and his work. So we arranged for an interview with Professor Redeker. But I wanted to make some brief announcements about Benjamin Lay before we go to the interview. First, of course, we have Professor Redeker's biography on the Buzzkill bookshelf this week. Second, contemporary Quakers in Britain and the United States are celebrating Benjamin Lay's life with lectures and presentations and seminars, and I encourage you to attend one of those in your area. Finally, Professor Redeker is writing a stage play with Naomi Wallace entitled The Return of Benjamin Lay. Naomi Wallace's wonderful plays such as One Fleece Spare" and The Slaughter Room have led to her being awarded a MacArthur Fellowship and many other prestigious cultural awards. So we'll keep you posted on the progress of that play, and of course, we'll promote it when it appears. And now, over to our interview with Professor Redeker. Okay, yes, here we are with Professor Marcus Redeker at the University of Pittsburgh, talking about his research in his new book, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, The Quaker Dwarf Who Became the First revolutionary abolitionist. How are you, Professor? I'm very well, thanks. Thank you very much for being on the show. We did an earlier show, a brief show, a Man Crush Monday show on Benjamin Lay, but could you please tell our listeners more of, of who he was and what his significance
1: is? Benjamin Lay was one of the earliest and, I would add, one of the fiercest opponents of slavery He actually became an abolitionist in 1718, a good two generations before the Enlightenment and the uh, moment when most people think the abolition movement emerges. Uh, He was very, very committed to eliminating slave-owning among his fellow Quakers. Quakers had grown wealthy in the New World, and they did what other wealthy people did. They bought slaves. And to Benjamin, this was absolutely destroying the faith. He was completely convinced this was wrong. So he basically devoted his life to uh, trying to get Quakers to abolish slavery in their own midst.
2: Now, the the Quaker slavery anti-slavery thing is very interesting because it's almost well, a complete dichotomy. The, 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 there's a lot there are a lot of Quaker, Quakers involved in the slave trade or at least financing the slave trade, but then they do become later in the 18th century, and 19th century, heavy
1: abolitionists. How does that change? Benjamin Lay had a lot to do with oh, that. Wow, okay. The the Quakers uh, were. Very, very important to transatlantic commerce. Mm-hmm. And so they therefore got involved in all kinds of trade, not only with Africa, but especially with the Caribbean, where they they provided a lot of the uh, commodities that helped the plantation economy there mm-hmm. to run. So, Benjamin knew a lot of Quaker merchants who were involved in one way or another with uh, slave economies. Uh, he was opposed to that. He, along with a few others, began this process of challenging Quaker slave trading and slave owning. Mm-hmm. Uh, he personally was quite seriously repressed for it. He was disowned, uh, actually more than once, but most uh, importantly in Philadelphia and in Abington for his protests against uh, slave trading and slave owning. So essentially what happened was during the period when Benjamin was the leading voice of anti-slavery, Uh, In the years from roughly 1732 to the early 1750s, that was the moment when hearts and minds among Quakers were changing. Mm -hmm. The the Quaker rank and file were turning against slavery. Uh, Then in 1753, 1754, uh, there was a breakthrough. Some Mm -hmm. of the older... Quaker slave owners who had opposed Benjamin uh, died, uh, passed out of positions of leadership. A younger generation, influenced by Benjamin and others, came to the fore and then began still a slow process Mm -hmm. by which Quakers became the first religious group to outlaw slavery in their own midst. Now, he he didn't come to anti-slavery just by just by intellectual
2: means. He had traveled the Atlantic quite a lot in his his younger days.
1: Yes, he had. He first learned about slavery when he was working as a sailor. Mm -hmm. Uh, He sailed around the world. He never actually sailed in the slave trade, Uh, At least I'm pretty sure of that. I'm sure he would have mentioned it if he had. But he had fellow sailors, Mm -hmm. some of whom had actually been themselves slaves in Turkey. And he also knew people who had been on board slave ships. So he heard the horrific stories of the slave trade. Then in 1718, Benjamin and his wife Sarah moved to Barbados, where they opened a small shop on the waterfront. And here he really saw uh, plantation slavery at its most powerful. Barbados was at that time probably the leading slave society in the world. He saw people starving to death. He saw people beaten to death. He saw people tortured. Uh, he was horrified by this. And at that moment, he noted later, uh, I became opposed to slavery.
2: Right, okay. Now, he would have seen them from not only the ship, but uh, in his shop and, and in Barbados, getting off the dock and the presumably the auction block and all that, all exactly. that sort of process.
1: He had a very close personal relationship to slavery in Barbados. He knew quite a number of enslaved people. And uh, this was something that uh, really, it, it, it was so deeply disturbing to him. You would probably call it traumatic, oh, wow. uh, and it stayed with him really for the rest of his life. You can tell when he's writing his book, All Slave Keepers Apostates, published in 1738 by mm-hmm. Benjamin Franklin, that the sheer recovery of the memory of his time in Barbados was very painful to him.
2: Now, Barbados was mainly uh, known for sugar production, is that right? That is in the right. the British Empire? Mm-hmm. And that sugar, sugar plantations were famously, infamously... Uh, very labor-intensive, well, and very argument, much so. the the so so-called justification that that slave owners made was well, we need we need laborers, and that's one of the reasons why the slave the slavery became so prominent there.
1: Yes, I think historians agree that of all of the different slave regimes, and this involves uh, tobacco, rice, uh, coffee, uh, sugar. Sugar is the most violent and oh, the right. most destructive. So Benjamin really saw the uh, the essence of the plantation system.
2: Okay, then then from Barbados, does he stay in Barbados or go uh, go back to England, back up to America? Does he make this sort of triangle, the famous Atlantic Trade Triangle?
1: Well, while he's in Barbados, uh, he actually begins to feed the hungry. Huh. He had a kind of... Pastor's view, and a lot of enslaved people came in and shop. they were hungry, so hmm. Benjamin and Sarah began to feed the hungry, and ever larger numbers of enslaved people show up at their home and this of course, catches the attention of the slave owners, right, right. so they actually began to harass Benjamin and Sarah. And tell them that they are uh, endangering his majesty's most valuable colony. Mm. And they start to pressure them to leave. They actually order them to leave. As it happens, Benjamin and Sarah had already decided to leave on their own. Uh, They simply couldn't take the horror of Barbados. So in 1720... After about 18 months, they go back to England. Oh, okay. They go back to England, they go back to London, then they move to Colchester, they live in England for another 10 years, uh, 12 years, and then in 1732, they emigrate to Philadelphia.
2: Now, while they're in England, Benjamin becomes quite vocal in Quaker meetings and things like that about not only about the slave trade and slavery, but about other things. In your book, you make it very clear, especially in the early chapters, that he's really agitating and disruptive in a lot of meetings about all sorts of moral issues
1: he is he benjamin is what i call uh An antinomian radical, and by that I mean he's someone who thought that he had a direct line to God by the quality of his religious faith, and he thought that he was a very apt person to judge religious practice that he considered to be ungodly.
2: Okay, an antinomian means?
1: Means basically against authority.
2: Against authority, right, right.
1: It's a sort of anti-authority. Uh, attitude That if and, you
2: already have the connection with God yourself personally, exactly. that you don't have to follow
1: the law of uh, see, the unjust and, laws. And see, this is actually important to Quakerism because the Quakerism itself has a strong antinomian strand, which is why they don't have regular ministers.
2: Oh, yes, right. Of
1: Quakers actually uh, have – they don't have formal uh, uh, liturgies. Uh, They do, by the 18th century, have approved ministers, and Benjamin doesn't really like that kind of development. So one of the things he is constantly uh, speaking out against is people who think of themselves as above the other Quakers. Frequently, these are wealthier Quakers. Mm -hmm. He's thinking that uh, they are not really preaching uh, from the Spirit. Uh, They're too corrupted by worldly concerns. And he speaks out against them, and that gets him in trouble. And
2: so in the, on the one hand, you could kind of read it as if he's sort of a professional crank. He's constantly complaining about this aspect and also about slavery and other things, disrupting Quaker meetings. But he doesn't just do this for, for, for the sense of being a crank. He actually has read up on this. He's actually well-versed yeah. on all these
1: moral concerns. He's very deeply knowledgeable about Quaker mm-hmm. theology. Now, he is channeling the early Quakers, the, the Quakers who appear in the middle of the English Revolution mm-hmm. in the 1640s and 1650s, and they were quite a bit more radical than the latter-day Quakers, who okay. were his contemporaries. So, in a way, he's trying to revitalize the faith and take it back to its founding principles.
2: Now, does he—we uh, we, haven't mentioned the, the fact, of course, that he's a dwarf. How does that uh, impact uh, his the the reception he's getting from other people do they think of him as 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 you know oddity both
1: in both physically and uh you know uh, religiously to be a dwarf in the eighteenth century is i think uh it's something unusual. On the one hand, lots of people in the 18th century had physical limitations mm-hmm. of one kind or another from accidents, from things that happened because of poor health care. Mm-hmm. Uh, people were maimed. There were lots of beggars. Uh, but to, to be a dwarf and to insist, as Benjamin did, on being treated equally right. in every situation— Mm-hmm. He would not allow anybody to condescend to him. Uh, this created tension. Now, Quakers were committed to the principle of spiritual equality. Right, right. I think that's one reason why he was so devoted to the Quakers, but his uh, utter determination was to make Quakers live up to it in their interactions with him and in their treatment of people of African descent and in all kinds of ways. So he, he had a very fiery personality, mm-hmm. uh, and he, he believed that he knew the truth. He was quite self-righteous, but he was also very tough and very courageous.
2: And how is this received by Quakers in London and other places where he is? Well,
1: they don't like someone who challenges, especially the so-called weighty Quakers. Mm-hmm. The Quakers who are wealthier and seem to have more influence. He is really a thorn in their side. Yeah. He's very committed to the ideas of equality. So these... Uh, these uh, conflicts that he generates and criticizing some established Quaker ministers, that's one of the things that gets him in trouble with the, the Quaker hierarchy, and that's one of the things that actually gets him disowned.
2: Now, disowned is an interesting thing because, to me because it seems as if within Quakerism, and I might very well be wrong about this, you could be kicked out, and I don't know a lot of other religions that do that or well, a lot of it, denominations it, that do it,
1: that. It's, it's complicated because mm-hmm. in Quakerism— there are different kinds of meetings. Yeah. There are worship meetings, mm-hmm. and everybody is entitled to come to a worship meeting, even if you're not a Quaker. Right. And then there are business meetings where Quakers decide what they as a group are going to do. Mm-hmm. If you are a member in good standing... Of the Quaker faith, you can participate in both meetings, but once you are disowned, you can no longer participate in the business meetings. You well, can't help set the direction of the exactly of the faith. The minister of the meeting in the faith, but Benjamin would keep coming to the worship meetings, right, right, where he would not be excluded, and he would speak out, and this would continue to cause problems. So, so he uh, and speak out rather dramatically. Dramatically, he used what I call a guerrilla theater. Oh. He he did things that were uh, bound to make people talk about his methods. Uh, mm-hmm. Should I describe one such instance? Sure. Yeah. The, the most not the
2: Philadelphia one. We'll get to that in a little bit. Okay.
1: While. <laughs> uh, Benjamin thought that uh, tea drinking was wrong. He thought it was an, uh, an unnecessary luxury, but hmm. he also had in mind the fact that plantation workers in india are very severely exploited to produce tea and then of course the enslaved africans in a place like barbados whom he knew personally yeah basically spent their lives to produce sugar
2: for the tea partly for, for the, the tea,
1: tea. Yeah. so sugar and tea they go together so one day in 1742 benjamin takes um a set of fine china uh teacups and saucers into Mm -hmm. the Philadelphia marketplace and a a big um, container of tea. And he starts railing just to whoever will listen against tea drinking and a crowd begins to form. And he talks about uh, the horrors of sugar and all this. And at one point he pulls a mallet out of his uh, jacket And smashes one of those teacups.
2: They're they're obviously valuable. They're extremely valuable.
1: Everybody is shocked by this. And they start screaming, Benjamin, Benjamin, don't destroy the beautiful china. Give the china to me. And then he smashes another one. And he keeps smashing these teacups until it basically causes a riot. Mm -hmm. Uh, And several people rush at him in the teacups. He's knocked over. Uh, uh, a young man actually picks him up and carries him away right. so that other people can take the China teacups. Oh, <laughs> uh, and he, but, but essentially he had made his point. And, and again, in a really vivid and dramatic way, this mm-hmm. is wrong. You must think of the people whose labor went into the things that you're consuming. And, right. th- and this makes him a very modern man. He, he really understood the, uh, the politics of consumption
2: yeah that's fascinating because that's as we'll talk about later on, that's one of the reasons why your New York Times article talks about you know the degrees of his radicalism, the way radicalism is nowadays. So this happens in Philadelphia. So he and his wife have left left England after 10 years and they've gone. To Philadelphia?
1: Gone to Philadelphia. They moved to Philadelphia in 1732. They spend about two years in the city, and then they move to uh, a Quaker-dominated region about eight miles northwest of Philadelphia called Abington. Right. right. And Benjamin will live there for the rest of his life, uh, another 25 years.
2: So it's in the Philadelphia region also that he makes later his biggest, most dramatic uh, interruption of a Quaker meeting. Can you tell, tell us a little bit about what happens?
1: Yes, the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, which is the highest authority in the region and after London, the second most powerful meeting of mm-hmm. Quakers in the world, is holding its uh, its annual gathering in Burlington, New Jersey in September 1738. And this is where all the big Quakers will be, including the ones who are slave owners. So Benjamin goes to this meeting and he is ready to make an intervention. Right. He uh, dresses in a military uniform, mm-hmm. even though Quakers are pacifists and they have rejected both war and weapons. Yeah,
2: famously rejected, yeah.
1: He takes uh, an animal bladder and fills it with bright red pokeberry juice and then ties that off and puts it inside one of those books that has a secret compartment.
2: Oh, up. yes, hollowed out.
1: Hollowed out okay. book. Closes the book. Uh, He actually straps a sword to his waist Mm -hmm. to go along with the military military. uniform. Then he throws an overcoat over everything so that no one can see it.
2: Because, of course, you can't bring a weapon into a Quaker meeting. No, you cannot bring a weapon
1: to a Quaker meeting. So he goes into the meeting. Now, there are hundreds of people here. This is a very, very big meeting. And he takes what he considers to be a strategic position. And since there's no Quaker minister and people speak as the spirit moves them, mm. he waits until it's his turn. He's moved by his spirit, which is quite an unruly thing. Uh, <laughs> and he stands up and he begins to denounce slave owning. Right. He says slave owning is the greatest sin in the world. Uh, he says that it's wrong for Quakers to own slaves. And of course, he's surrounded by Quaker slave owners. He, right. he, he set that up. Then he says uh, in a booming voice, the voice of a prophet, he says, God will take vengeance against those who oppress their fellow creatures. And he mm-hmm. throws off the coat. And the audience sees that he's got this military uniform and, and, and the, this, a gasp fills the hall. Yeah. Because that, that in itself is shocking. It's shocking. He holds the book above his head. Mm-hmm. He pulls out the sword and then he runs the sword through the book. And the bright red berry juice appears as blood and comes gushing down his arm. And then he sprinkles the blood on the heads and bodies of the slave owners. Ah that they are tainted by the blood of their fellow creatures and that God will take vengeance against them. And, of course, this very dramatic event infuriated all of the wealthy Quakers, mm-hmm. and he was physically thrown out of the meeting. Uh, and fairly soon thereafter, they published notices in the Philadelphia newspaper saying that he is no longer a member of our religious community. All right.
2: Now, do we know whether what – whether the book was actually a Bible to make it more dramatic, or do we just know we, that it was a book? We don't know. Okay. Some
1: people thought it was a Bible. Some people thought it was a copy of his own book. Right, okay. Uh, we don't know for sure.
2: But he certainly he certainly planned this out very carefully because it took a long time to hollow out the book. And he did. Make it. Okay, so he's he's thrown out of the of the, of that meeting is he then thrown out of his basically in, in effect, thrown out of his own home meeting nearer to Abington?
1: No, actually the people in Abington had a much greater tolerance for Benjamin than hmm. did the wealthy Philadelphia Quakers, because hmm. there's a lot of evidence that he continued to attend meetings there. He actually goes on attending the business meetings for a while. Right. Uh, he is finally, uh, uh, forced out of the business meetings, but he had a lot of friends in Abington he was very close with two of the most eminent families, uh, the Morris family and the Phipps family. The, the children of the Morrises, he basically trained to be abolitionists. Mm-hmm. Uh, he spent time in their home. So, so Benjamin in Abington uh, did not have as many enemies as he did in the upper level of the Quaker hierarchy in Philadelphia.
2: And by, while all this is going on, what's happening to Sarah? What is she? Is she Sarah
1: so, died much younger than Benjamin. Oh, okay, she okay. died in 1735. Benjamin, uh, at this time is living in a cave.
2: Yes. That's another thing that Buzzkillers should know.
1: Yes. He, he lived in a cave. He, uh, produced all of his own food and mm-hmm. only, uh, fruits and vegetables. He was a committed vegetarian. He was a champion of animal rights. He wanted to live a simple and holy life, uh, and this is what he did uh, in in Abington. And it, and it is uh, fascinating that some uh, two Quakers in Abington think they have found his cave.
2: You mean now, nowadays? Just recently, okay, yes. Yeah.
1: And uh, based on the evidence that I have of its location, I think they have found it. So there will be more information forthcoming about this.
2: And the reports I read about the cave uh, is that he actually made it fairly comfortable. He made it lifetime.
1: comfortable. He, he, uh, he had a library in the cave. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He loved books. Benjamin was a, was a man of the book. He had about 200 uh, books in his library, and that's a pretty big library by 18th oh, century sure, sure. standards. He had the best collection of the early Quaker uh, authors. Uh, so he lived here in Comfort. It was a, a beautiful stream nearby, and uh, he thought this was really the proper place to live uh, a spiritual existence.
2: Okay. So we also have, uh, relatively recently, in addition to maybe finding his cave, there's also been some other news about Benjamin Lay, and how he's been sort of reestablished by Quaker yes. meetings.
1: I, I can't tell you how happy this has made me. The uh, Abington Quaker meeting where Benjamin uh, was a member for so long, and where, by the way, both Sarah, his wife, and he himself, uh, they're both buried mm-hmm. in the Abington Quaker uh, burial ground. Uh, Sarah was ben- was buried as a member, Benjamin as a non-member because mm-hmm. he had been disowned. Uh, I spoke at that Quaker meeting, um, in 2016. And then again, uh, after the book was published in October, 2017 and, uh, to my utter joy a group of people prepared a minute or a declaration Mm -hmm. saying that Benjamin Lay, having been disowned in 1738 by the Abington meeting, uh, was now to be seen as a friend of the truth, Mm -hmm. that when he spoke about slavery, he was telling the truth, that other Quakers were wrong in that day. And they uh, also, in this same minute, uh, announced that, Uh, we declare our unity with the spirit of Benjamin Lay. So in a very real sense, he has been brought back into the congregation. almost an enhanced sense. We we declare our unity. That's quite a... Exactly. No, it's a very strong statement. And a similar statement has also been made in one of the London Quaker Mm -hmm. communities, the uh, Quaker community of North London, where he was disowned. So uh, this to me is pretty remarkable. Benjamin has come back. (laughs)
2: Well, we are going to come back in a minute, but right now we have to take a very quick sponsorship break. So back in a sec. Okay, we're back with Professor
1: Redeker. Presser. How does Benjamin finish out his life, so to speak? Benjamin uh, lives in his cave. He Mm -hmm. remains active. He continues to speak out against slavery. He educates young people. It takes a special interest in that. And then one day in 1758, a fellow Quaker arrives at his cave Mm -hmm and says, uh, uh, Benjamin, the Philadelphia yearly meeting has finally voted that they will discipline or disown any Quaker who participates in the slave trade. Oh, 1758. That's a long while before the slave trade is abolished. Exactly. 1758. And Benjamin, uh, according to the story told by some older Quakers who knew him is quiet for a time. And then he says, uh, Praise God, Mm -hmm. I can now die in peace.
2: Right.
1: Because what he understood was that this is the beginning of the end. Okay. In other words, this first big step was going to result eventually in Quakers making it impossible for anyone in their order to own a slave. Now it took another 18 years for that to happen. Right. The debate went on. There were lots of Quakers who owned slaves mm-hmm. and they were resistant. So, and, and you know, Quakers work by consensus. Sure. So it took activists like John Woolman and Anthony Benizet and others to carry this forward. But, but finally in 1776, the Quakers do make it Uh, uh, You cannot be a Quaker and own a slave. Benjamin saw that coming. Uh, He died one year later in 1759, um, having had a feeling of uh, some satisfaction uh, over this accomplishment.
2: Now, uh, Quakers also, if they aren't directly owning slaves, may be investing in the slave trade, investing in ships and investing in slave trading companies. So there's a lot of involvement. Does that all then end? That is sense?
1: covered under this. Anyone involved in the slave trade, mm-hmm. whether you're actually on the ship or just providing the money to, uh, to to finance the voyage, no more Quaker involvement in the slave trade. Right, okay. And now, it does continue a little illegally, but a lot of people leave. Yeah, They do get out of it.
2: Oh, out of, out of the slave trade or yeah. out of Quaker? Okay. And now this is almost 50 years before the slave trade is abolished and then before slavery is in the British Empire is abol- abolished. Exactly. That's a 1807 and 1833. Were there other radical, major radical groups or major groups, major religious groups involved in this sort of
1: anti-slavery agitation? Absolutely. The- well, what happens is in the 1780s, in the 1790s, you see the growth of a big transatlantic abolition mm-hmm. movement. The uh, the the main group is the one formed by Thomas Clarkson in London in right. 1787. But Clarkson himself was tremendously influenced by the early Quaker opponents of slavery, including mm-hmm. Benjamin Lay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Clarkson read them. He read Benizet and, and really drew to a very large extent on their ideas. Benjamin Lay actually makes a comeback in the 1790s as the abolition movement is growing, and they're seeking uh, ancestors. Oh, who, I see. Who are our virtuous ancestors? What's our genealogy? So Benjamin Rush, the Philadelphia physician and signer of the Declaration of Independence, uh, in 1790 writes the first biography of Benjamin Lay. Oh, wow. It's an article in a, in a magazine, and he basically says, Benjamin... Benjamin Lay was much reviled in his own era, but that's what it took to make people wake up. His extreme methods were really necessary. So what you'll discover, uh, is that Benjamin Lay is remembered by the anti-slavery movement. It happens again in the 1830s hmm. when uh, uh, abolitionists like Lydia Maria Child and Benjamin Lundy and others, they also begin to write uh, biographies of Benjamin Lay and saying, look, here are our roots. Right. So he's very much a spiritual,
2: and that's one of the reasons he's so important as a radical. Who else is, go, who else is trying to uh, agitate ag- ag- for the abolition of the slave trade?
1: Well, that that is primarily based in London. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wrote about this at some length in uh, a book called The Slave Ship, A Human History. Mm-hmm. Uh, this man, Thomas Clarkson, who was a young gentleman at Cambridge, mm-hmm. decided that he wanted to make the abolition of the slave trade his life's work. Uh, a dozen people met in London in 1787 uh, to form the society to Effect the abolition of the slave trade. Now, this was a pretty uh, remarkable thing to try to do, given its economic power at that time. But what's really remarkable is that in a space of about five Mm years— That group of organizers had grown into a national movement that essentially had a consensus that the slave trade should be abolished. Now, it will be delayed for about 15 years by the wars with France.
2: Right, right, right. Which More or less out, constant in that uh, Yeah, they're ages, constant in
1: that period. And, and when they finally come to an end, the slave trade is abolished. Mm. Uh, but here's one of the things that I thought was so important about Thomas Clarkson. In order to educate himself about the slave trade, he goes to the two greatest slave trading cities in the UK, right. Liverpool and Bristol, right. and he goes down to the docks and he interviews sailors.
2: Oh, interviews sailors who are taking the slaves, over. who okay. have
1: actually been on board these vessels. Right, those sailors become his informants about the conditions of life on board the ship. Ah, and there's one man in particular named John Dean, a black sailor. Mm-hmm. Uh, who took off his shirt to show uh, Thomas Clarkson how he, as a sailor, had been tortured by his ship captain. He had been whipped and then uh, into the scars on his back or the furrows of the whip, the captain had poured hot metal as a kind of torture. So so these sailors, Mm. many of whom had turned against the slave trade themselves— Uh, educated Clarkson, and that then became a key to his ability to talk about the slave trade and to build a national consensus. Is that where we get that process? Is that where we get the,
2: the lithographs, the drawings of, of the
1: inside of a slave ship where you see all the bodies? Precisely. Like cordwood. Precisely. What happened was uh, a group of abolitionists in Plymouth, England, mm-hmm. drew the first— uh, shall we say, lower deck of a slave ship with the bodies of enslaved Africans right. symmetrically arranged all around it? Uh, Clarkson got that. He then uh, used information that had been gathered by another abolitionist who had gone on board uh, a, a slaver in Liverpool called the Brooks mm-hmm. and actually taken its measurements. He then produced a much more scientific version of the slave ship. Oh probably drafted by a naval architect. Mm -hmm. This then became one of the most powerful symbols of the movement against the slave trade because this made real to people what the conditions on board those ships actually were. You see 480 bodies uh, crammed into this tiny space proving visually what William Wilberforce said, he said, there has never been so much misery crammed into such a small space as mm. aboard a slave ship.
2: Wilberforce, of course, the famous member of parliament who becomes who, who is, is kind of, compared to Clarkson, is a little bit of a latecomer to the anti-slave trade. Yes, Clarkson becomes, actually helped
1: to educate him, but Wilberforce yeah. is an aristocrat and right. a leading figure, so he does play a uh, an important role. And lots of our listeners will have heard of him. What seems
2: so interesting to me is that a lot of the things that are most uh, effective in the anti-slave trade are the most dramatic. So Benjamin Lay is dramatic, or at least eventually his writings are dramatic. You know, he's, he's using the his stagecraft, if you will, during the meetings. And then there are these pictures, you know, people aren't going out, or maybe they are, but it's not as effective, um, aren't going out arguing intellectually against the slave trade. They're making very, very, the, the anti-slave trade very human and very basic.
1: I think the, the challenge was to, as, as Benjamin Lay saw it, the challenge was to make people wake up. Yeah, right. That's the, that's the language he used. You, you know, you are complicit with all this mm-hmm. and you've got to wake up. So these images, these moments of guerrilla theater were designed to essentially confront people and sure. to agitate Right. Because in every meeting Benjamin Lay was in, he would draw this line. He would say, look, I'm against slavery. Are mm-hmm. you for it or are you against it? Right. There's no middle ground on this. You're mm-hmm. either for it or against it. And if you pretend that you're neither, you're actually for it. Right. So so this was, he agitated again and again and again. And slowly this had a very, very uh, powerful effect.
2: Because the idea was that even if you say, well, it's, it's, you know, it's the way of the world. We can't do anything about it. And the, the economy partly runs on it. All that stuff really eff- effectively means you're
1: pro-slavery. Exactly. That means you're pro-slavery. And if you drink tea with sugar, that means mm-hmm. you are actively supporting in a material way the slave regime.
2: So we're still talking about the 1780s, 1790s here. How does it then
1: continue on till the early 19th century and get evolved? Well, one thing that happens, which is very important, is that Benjamin Lay is the first person to boycott slave produced goods. In oh, other words, right. okay. he won't buy uh-huh. anything that yeah. was produced by slave labor. That then becomes a major tactic of the abolition movement, oh, especially okay. in England, the boycott of sugar
2: yes, that's right. becomes yeah.
1: extremely important. So so you have you have the development of uh, related but still independent abolition movements uh, in Great Britain and in the United States it's much stronger in Great Britain mm-hmm. they as you said earlier they achieve uh, abolition in two stages in 17 uh, excuse me 1833 and then finally in 1838 uh, in the United States the abolition movement grows in the north but it is anathema to the south so it takes a bloody civil war in order right. to, to end right. slavery but these movements are growing and Benjamin Lay- is, uh, is acknowledged in both
2: but the actual slave the, the trade is abolished in 1807 yes it, the, the, the tr- slave trade part.
1: is abolished in England in 1807 and the United States in 1808 right. as a, a compromise that grew out of the debates about the constitution Right. The delegates gave the Southern uh, uh, representatives 20 years mm-hmm. to continue to import slaves, and then in 1808, it was abolished. Now, I should say there's a lot of scholarship now to prove that the slave trade continues to go on illegally oh, whoa, whoa, for whoa. a long time. Okay. So so those dates are uh, symbolic dates, right. and those are dates that signify uh, a victory of mm-hmm. a movement, a broad-based social movement but they don't mean the end of slavery. There continues to be a lot of importation of, uh, of slaves to the United States, some directly from Africa and some from the Caribbean.
2: Right, okay. And, and of course, there's natural increase, slaves having exactly. children staying Exactly, that's stay a in very slavery.
1: important part of the growth of the population of enslaved people in the U.S. But, but is it fair to say that anti-slavery is the big radical movement in this period? I think many scholars think, and I'm one of them, that the abolition movement is probably the world's first great social movement. Oh, okay.
2: Yeah. That's very, very important. Very <laughs>
1: important. And it has very modern techniques of petitions to mm-hmm. governments and organizing campaigns and politicizing consumption.
2: And getting aristocrats involved and yeah, people right. higher it's, up. So it's to a
1: cross class thing, but here's a fascinating, uh, part of it that is becoming more and more uh, better understood with recent scholarship, there were a lot of working class people involved in the abolition movement. You know, this is not very well known. And this of course is true of Benjamin Lay. He was Mm -hmm. an ordinary working class person. He had been a, he'd been born to a a humble farm family. Uh, He had worked as a uh, shepherd, as a sailor, as a glover. It turns out that uh, in the 1790s and early 1800s, thousands of workers in British factories are signing anti-slavery petitions.
2: That's right. And in the immediate term, they don't have necessarily a a benefit to themselves immediately for signing those petitions. Those are moral statements.
1: Exactly. That's exactly right. I even found an instance where a group of cutlers, metalware workers Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in Sheffield, England, whose... Productions, whose knives and other kinds of metalware were involved in the slave trade, they too issued a statement. So actually it was against their economic interest oh, to right.
2: do it. Yeah, yeah. And
1: they too opposed and protested against the slave trade.
2: It even go, you even find it in things like uh, not only the boycotting of sugar, but you know, the Clapham sect and people having little tokens showing that they're yes. anti-slavery. It's yes. very, very, very much a, you know, a visible protest
1: this is the way that a movement grows you develop Mm. a movement culture Mm -hmm. and so the symbols of the anti-slavery movement are great Uh, the anti-slavery movement Uh, generates uh, many, many thousands of its own publications. Right, right. So they are traveling speakers who are itinerant, who go from one place to another, speaking about anti-slavery. So what began uh, as something very small with dissident figures like Benjamin Lay becomes this huge, uh, very complicated social movement.
2: Okay, and we'll come back to talk more about that social movement and social movements nowadays after this station identification break.
0: Hello, this is Lady Buzzkill. If you simply must follow my husband's deluded podcast hobby, you can also find him on Facebook, Twitter at BuzzkillProf, and Instagram at Professor Buzzkill. You might go to ProfessorBuzzkill.com if you're so inclined, and support him on Patreon. Subscribe to his email list, if you must, and shop the Buzzkill bookshelf. The only thing that seems to keep him from making more noise and frightening the horses is that The Professor Buzzkill Show is part of Entertainment One's podcast network. And of course, it's available on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and all major podcast apps. Finally, I suppose I should thank you for listening. So, thank you for listening.
2: Okay, we're back with Professor Rediger talking about Benjamin Lay and the abolition of slavery. Professor, what, what initially attracted me to this subject was the article in the New York times that you wrote about Benjamin Lay and the title of the headline of the article was you'll never be as radical as this 18th century Quaker dwarf. And not only did I find that, you know, eye catching and intriguing and provoking, it really made me think about, you know, how, how do people approach radicalism in the 18th century? How do they become so radicalized? And then it becomes sort of a life, I won't say lifestyle, but all encompassing life purpose for them. Versus people who agitate for uh, change nowadays.
1: Yeah. I think I, I, I would say that with Benjamin Lay and the number of causes that he so fervently believed in, mm-hmm. it did become an entire way of life. Right. In yeah. other words, he had very radical principles that, uh, and, and it's, it's based on a fairly simple biblical idea mm. that you should do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Mm-hmm. And if you believe that, golden rule, then you will never enslave another person. Right, right. So, so Benjamin believed that we had, everyone had to be treated equally. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, as it happens, and this was, I think, one of the more interesting uh, and unexpected discoveries in the book that I wrote, Benjamin had read a lot of ancient philosophy. Mm-hmm. And he was very interested in a group of philosophers called the Cynics, mm-hmm. led by a man named Diogenes. And Diogenes, in particular, was very big on public confrontations in which the philosopher is supposed to teach their ideas to everyone else.
2: Oh, and public confrontations was exactly what he did. Exactly. Benjamin Lay,
1: that is. Yes. Benjamin Lay was very much into uh, conducting philosophy in public Mm -hmm. through confrontation. And uh, and the single greatest idea among the cynic philosophers— uh, is speaking truth to power. Right. You must always speak truth to those people who have a reason to try to cover it up. Mm-hmm. So confrontation is built in. This is uh, this is actually one of the the great principles of cynic philosophy. So, so Benjamin Lay's radicalism, which has many sources. There is a one source, one part of it comes out of the English revolution and those early Quakers. Another part of it it comes from ancient Greece. He creates a consistent and integrated set of ideals and then he tries to live by them. Mm -hmm. So he wants to live without harming any animal
2: Right, which, he, which it seems to me that he does. He does, and, and, and
1: he takes this to extremes. For example, uh, he makes his own clothes, right? and he will not wear leather. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also will not even wear wool because he objects to the violence in shearing a sheep.
2: Oh, right, which a is sheep isn't killed, but it's still right. taking away but it's something. violence. That,
1: right. And so what he does is he uses flax, Mm. And he actually spins his own flax and makes clothes out of linen, which involves no violence against any creature. So there's this great consistency in his life. He's opposed to the death penalty in Mm -hmm. all instances. Uh, He is... uh, as I've said, politically conscious about consumption, and all of these things make him, I think, a very modern man in many respects. I mean, animal rights, vegetarianism, uh, all these kinds of things. So it seems to me that, in a very real sense, the world, 300 years later, Mm -hmm. is finally catching up with Benjamin Lay and what he was doing in the early 18th century.
2: Now, a lot of radical movements nowadays I think I don't want to use the word pretend because that sounds insulting, but but try to believe in this idea of, of no you know no animal products and, and things like that, but fall short of them. Is it you think it's mainly because they you know in modern society it's almost impossible to go live in a cave like Benjamin Lay?
1: Well, this is it's a really good question. Uh, I think Benjamin made the choice that he wanted to live outside the market economy. Mm-hmm. Because if you lived in the market economy, you are basically going to be complicit with the exploitation of people. Right, right. Whoever that may be. So therefore, he didn't want other people to be exploited in making his clothes. Right. He didn't want people to be exploited in making his food. Mm-hmm. And so he opted out. Right. That's, that was the decision of living in the cave. It's harder to opt out now. Market yeah. society oh, much is much more comprehensive in so many of the things that we do, but I still think it's valuable. To, to recall, as Benjamin Lay uh, would be eager to teach us if he were here, <laughs> that you must always be conscious of the conditions under which the things in your life were originally produced. Right. What kinds of power relations are inherent in those things? And I think that that gives him a, a significance for us.
2: Yes, and of course, in the 19th century, he, he undoubtedly would have agitated against the m- m- maltreatment of factory workers and, and then later on, and of course, slavery continues in different places all throughout exactly. the world.
1: Precisely. No, the, he thought all of those things were uh, part of a, a single deep cause. Uh, and that cause was the struggle for equality and humanity.
2: Well, Buzzkillers, I think that's a very good place to wrap it up. So it's only for us to say thank you very much to Professor Redeker. And we'll talk to you next week.
1: 18 plus.